This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show, the Premier has talked about forgiving some of the COVID penalties that were handed out. You know that OPEC and the Saudis have been pressured by Joe Biden and the West to try and help out, lower the price of oil. To this point, they've said, yeah, no. And as lawmakers in our country try and come up with a way to keep kids safer online, all they have to do is take a look at plans that have already been made. Premier Danielle Smith, as you know, has promised to never again impose any kinds of restrictions or mandates on the unvaccinated. She's offered a full apology to the vaccinated, unvaccinated on behalf of a government that, well, she had nothing to do with uh, at the time. Uh, she's promised to explore her options for undoing any penalties that people may have been given for violating the province's public health restrictions. It's led to a lot of questions. Can she do that? What can she do? Um, is probably the fairer question. So to find out, we're going to chat now with Lisa Silver, University of Calgary Associate Law Professor. Lisa, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Absolutely. Good morning, Shay. Okay, so I'm not completely clear on exactly what it is the Premier wants to try and do, um, be it pardons, uh, fine forgiveness. First of all, let's just, what is the law? In, what powers does a Premier have when it comes to, you know, pardoning people convicted of crimes, for giving fines, how much power does she really have in this area? Right. So that is a really good question. I mean, the premier used the word pardon. She did. But what does she really mean by that? I mean, does she want to forgive the convictions for the breaches of the health orders? Does she want to remit the fines? What does she want to do and what can she do? Well, when it comes to the law, typically you need authority or some source of your power to do certain things within the justice system. And so when I looked into, well, what exactly could the premier do? And and by the way, she she did say that she's going to seek yeah, uh, yeah. legal advice, which I think is the best thing to do, um, because, uh, you know, it, it, it can be complicated. So first I looked at, well, what... What has the province done in the past? And uh, what I found was old, legis- old pieces of legislation. And so I want to make it clear that the authority usually has to flow from a piece of legislation, which is written law that okay. goes through the legislature, right? I mean, you can't just say, I'm going to do this. There has to be that 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 source. Okay, so that's a key and, distinction, because uh, I think a lot of us think, you know, like the United States, yeah. we know the presidents can just issue a pardon, and that's it. You're no longer convicted. Right. We do not have that system in Canada. No, we don't. Okay. And, and we are very much, even though we are what we can call a common law jurisdiction, meaning you know, laws that are created over time and by use and and uh, authorized by the courts, we still are very statutory. So we look to what is written down, and that means, again, that it goes through when it's a province, it goes through the legislature, it gets drafted, uh, it gets reviewed. 
So I thought, well, let me look and see, is there any authority available in legislation? So from what I could tell, and again, you know, I did, I did a very quick look, um, and I would assume that the lawyers giving advice will do a deeper yeah. one. But there was, back in the 40s, a 1942 Fines and Penalties Act, where the lieutenant governor and council, so I want to make it clear, it's a power that flows through the lieutenant governor. Um, and, of course, the lieutenant governor and council, uh, you know, obviously the lieutenant governor gets their um, ideas of, by the government, but typically it's a minister of justice. Uh, but the lieutenant governor and council back then could remit any fine penalty. So remit means you cancel payment. So that was there, mm-hmm. um, and the advice to do that flowed through what what we used to have two separate positions, the Minister of Justice and the Attorney General, and now they are one. And the Attorney General really was the official legal advisor of the Lieutenant Governor, uh, and you know the Attorney General would be able to consider applications for remission. So you see how that okay. would work. Yeah. You know, you'd get advice that would go. And by the way, under that act, uh, the lieutenant governor and council would have to give a detailed report of all the fines they remitted to the legislative authority. So lots of checks and balances. Yeah. So it can be done, but it's going to take some Hmm. some work and it's actually going to have to be. I guess the key distinction um, Lisa, is it, it, the premier can't just do it on her own. It's going to require a lot more people being involved. Yeah, absolutely. And and so that's just fine remission. I mean, if you're talking about pardon, yeah. that that means something else. Um, and that again, I looked at well, where can I draw an analogy? The federal government. So the federal government through the criminal code, uh, there is this special royal prerogative of mercy. Yep. Yep. So it's very special, exceptional, it's federal government only, um, and uh, the government can act in certain ways, but again, it's exceptional. It's for rare cases where there's humanitarian reasons, substantial injustice, not for people who are suffering normal consequences of an imposed sentence. And there's different levels to that too, Shay. So if you recall, cannabis. Right. Yes. Um, when it came to cannabis, the federal government brought in legislation that provided no cost expedited record suspensions for simple possession of cannabis. That's all it was. OK. Because people had criminal records. We don't have that with provincial offenses, by the way. There's no criminal records. Okay, gotcha. Um, last one here, and then I'll let you go. A um, yep. lot of people starting to say this is political interference that we don't want to see. We don't want politicians dipping their toes into which laws we're going to, you know, enforce and mm-hmm. punish. And uh, is there any legal statutes, as you say? It's all. I mean, what does the precedent say yeah. about politicians getting involved with enforcement of laws? Well, all I can say, and again, I just looked at well, if this can be done. How do you do it? Uh, but what I can say is that typically legislation flows from public policy, right? Mm-hmm. Public policy is, of course, a government uh, authority or purview. Uh, you know, it's up to them to create public policy. 
But they don't, again, they don't just create that. Public policy is typically uh, connected to their priorities as the government, which is then connected to uh, societal need and consensus. So, you know, the question is, uh, you know, does this kind of legislation fit government priorities? Does it reflect who we are as uh, an Alberta society? Right, yeah. And and as we said, a, a lot of this will, will have to require an act of legislation, which means it will have to go through yeah. the legislature. So, um, you know, Absolutely. our elected officials will have a chance to weigh in on it. Yeah, both opposition and uh, yeah. the government. Exactly. And that's, that's the way the system's supposed to work. Lisa, great insight. Thank you so much for joining us. As you know, we've got a bit of a situation on our hands when it comes to energy, right? Uh, we know that oil prices, we had a big conversation yesterday about how oil prices are, are very nice for uh, our oil producers uh, in our province. Revenues are really good. A um, little tougher for those of us uh, filling up at the gas pumps. Even worse if you're in Europe where they're really dealing with an energy crisis there. Um, the West, as you know, Joe Biden actually went to OPEC, went to the Saudis and said, hey, help us out a bit here. Can you increase the bring down uh, the price of uh, oil, thereby bringing down the price of gas. And and the Saudis not only said no, they went the opposite direction. So uh, they don't seem to be playing along. Why not? We'll find out. We're going to have a conversation now uh, about this very situation. Uh, with John Rapley, who is a political economist at the University of Cambridge and a senior fellow at the Johannesburg Institute for Advanced Study. John, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting. We see the the, the president heading, uh, you know, hat in hand to the Saudis saying, we need some help, but can OPEC help us out by increasing supply? And not only did they say no, they went the opposite direction. They're reducing supply, right? I mean, they're not playing uh, ball at all here. No, no, they're not. It strikes me as being a rather ham-fisted move by Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince, who's effectively the country's ruler. Uh, I think he's probably overplaying his hand, and he's going to live mm-hmm. to regret that move. What, what, what's the thinking? I mean, there's probably a short game and a long game, but what's the reasoning when, when the Saudis say no and, and OPEC actually decides they're going to reduce uh, their output? What's the reasoning there? At least, uh, what are we told? Well, there's the official answer and then there's the unofficial answer about which we can only speculate. But the official answer would be what the Saudis are giving is that this is all about economics. They're trying to keep the oil price at a relatively high level because, first of all, they don't want, they feel rather strongly that consuming countries shouldn't be the one to set the price. It should be set by the people who actually control the resource, which is the producing countries. But also they want to keep oil prices at a level that enable them to bring about this very ambitious uh, transformation. I mean, call it ambitious. Some would say it's absolutely crazy, some of the things that Mohammed bin Salman envisions for the future of Saudi Arabia. But he's trying to bring about a transformation of the economy, and he needs the money to do that. So that's the official line. Right. Unofficially, I think one has to bear in mind that Mohammed bin Salman was very close to the Trump administration, in particular to uh, to his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner. And I think his view would be he doesn't have to do Joe Biden any favors. Joe Biden hasn't done him any favors because he, first of all, when he came to office, tried to set out to isolate Mohammed bin Salman and to sort of weaken those ties, which, of course, have been a hallmark of American foreign policy in the Middle East. Um, so he doesn't feel he has to do him any favors. And 
I'm sure at the back of his mind is the thought that if this only makes life more difficult for the Democrats in the election year and might hasten the return of Donald Trump, that would actually be a win for him. So I, I don't think he's never going to say that publicly, and I yeah. don't think he'd even hint at that publicly. And well, he, well, he could hint at it publicly because he can tend to be rather... Uh, as I say, a bit of a bull in a china shop. But I, th I, I think that one can't rule out that possibility that that calculus came into it. A couple of the other issues happening geopolitically, how did they fit into it? Of course, we've got the Russia-Ukraine situation. It seems like they're aligning themselves more with Russia than with the rest, uh, the West. Do I have that right? I think that's probably a safe bet. I think they probably one shouldn't read too much into that. You okay. know, some people are saying, oh, this is the alliance of the autocrats. And I think the Saudis are at least clever enough that they know they don't want to align themselves too closely with Russia. In fact, I think other than North Korea, nobody wants to be seen as being wholly in the Russian camp. I think it's more a sort of marriage of convenience that this works for them. Again, they don't see any particular reason to build ties with this particular White House. Um, so I think there is that. There is clearly, I mean, the withdrawal of Russian oil. It's either that they abandon the sanctions and everyone goes back to buying Russian oil. I mean, the Americans do have other cards to play, of course. They they are already looking at improving relations with Venezuela, which is under sanctions. And there is possibly a movement there and bringing Venezuelan oil back on top, although that will take a while. Um, and, I mean, it's not out of the question that they could improve ties down the road with Iran or at least soften the hostility because right. one of the key elements of the alliance between the Americans and the Saudis is the fact that they're a counterbalance to Iran. And if Saudi Arabia is, well, first of all, Saudi Arabia regards the United States as a less reliable ally than it was in the past. And I think that's mutual. And I think um, the Americans would be more willing to deal with Iran than Saudi Arabia is willing to deal with Iran. And, and there might conceivably be moves in that direction coming as well. So these calculations the Saudis are making, ultimately, I mean, is it sort of a short-term thing? We know that everything is so in flux uh, with everything surrounding energy right now. And, you know, not only today, but who knows where it's going to be in 10 years, 20 years, 30. So uh, are, could they ultimately be shooting themselves in the foot here? Well, I guess to see it from their perspective, they'd say no, they're thinking of long term and, and they do have a reasonable position, which is that I don't think there is an American administration since the war that would not rather have found a way to get disentangled from the Middle East because it's seen as a quagmire. There's mm. nothing to gain, but you just can't avoid involvement. And the main reason you can't avoid involvement is oil. oil. It is energy and it's the dependence. And if there's a way that can be found to reduce that dependence or ideally to eliminate it, I think just about any American administration would do that. And the Saudis know this. The Saudis know that they're considered an expendable ally, and if the Americans could find a way of backing out, they would. So I think they're looking at cementing their own alliances in the region, um, playing the field a bit more, not assuming the Americans are always going to be in their corner, or at least not willing to, in particular, and not willing to fight for them. In the event, for example, of a conflict with Iran, they just don't believe American security guarantees can be relied upon. So I think they're looking to shore up relations with, for example, United Arab Emirates. They're trying to build better relations there. Uh, they're trying to build better relations with Israel. They're taking very much a regional focus, and I think they think we're going to have to stand on our own to a greater degree. So that I think that kind of backdrop informs his thinking, that there is a reasonable calculation he's got to make. 
it's kind of interesting because it's you know we continue at least from what i can tell we continue to sort of placate the saudis we put up with all kinds of nonsense look the other way with the killing of journalists i mean the list goes on um and, and you're saying they're starting to feel that maybe that blanket support that they've enjoyed is going away I think so. I think, well, I mean, it, it, there are very clear indications because the Americans haven't been all that secretive, nor have the other Western countries been all that secretive if, that if they could find a way. Right. Uh, but they haven't been able to find that one. They haven't been able to find a way. But I think, you know, you mentioned a moment ago the Europeans, and I think the Europeans in particular are under intense pressure to find a way to minimize their dependence on imported energy. Because, I mean, just today, one of the big uh, German companies announced it's sort of permanently downsizing its operations in Europe because energy is simply too expensive and they yeah. don't see a solution to this. If the Germans in particular, which is a big manufacturing powerhouse, don't come up with a solution to the energy problem, which involves reducing dependence because they, they don't produce it, so they have to import gas and oil and they're looking at all the options they're exploring all possibilities including other suppliers of natural gas that they could be more reliant on uh it includes shifting perhaps to nuclear although they're very ambivalent about that's certainly renewable energy i think that's ultimately going to cause a long-term drop in demand at least from Europe for any kind of carbon-based energy, and that could have significant implications. And again, I think the Saudis know that. They're, they, they sort of say, well, you know, in 10 or 15 years' time, nobody's we're at the risk that, you know, demand for yeah. what we have to sell will have greatly reduced. We better grab the money while we can. Yeah, the one thing that's keeping us sort of in a position where we can call at least some of the shots could be gone very soon. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Um, thank you so much, John. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for being here today. talked before about um, the case of Amanda Todd, and you might remember that case. It gave us all uh, a far too tragic lesson in just how dangerous cyberspace can be for our kids. Todd, of course, was the victim of sexual exploitation that eventually led to her taking her own life. Her tormentor, a Dutchman, recently given jail time, but it, it showed us how we need to come up with some ways of trying to make it a safer space. I don't think you can make it completely safe, but there are some things that we can do. In fact, they've already been done. It's the work of our next guest, Elizabeth Denham, Information Commissioner uh, of the United Kingdom from 2016 to 2021, Information and Privacy Commissioner of British Columbia. Uh, she is a trustee of Five Rights, an international charitable organization that works to put kids' rights at the heart of digital design. She's also an international advisor on this, and uh, we're delighted she has time to join us today. Uh, Ms. Denham, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate your time. Thank you for inviting me, Shay. So this Amanda Todd case, it goes back uh, a decade now. So online safety around our kids, this is, this is nothing new. It's something that's been out there and been a concern for some time, right? It has, it has, and Britain has, unfortunately, its own Amanda Todd, um, that a teenager named Molly Russell took her own life, and that, again, spurred some law changes in the UK. But if you think about the technology and how it's advancing at breakneck speed, we know that our children are spending more and more time online and from an ever young, younger age. Yeah. So we, ne we need to put some guardrails to protect our kids online. And, you know, you make a good point. Going back to those cases, uh, I mean, it's only gotten worse, right? The dangers that are out there, and it's become, we, we hear from authorities all the time, these exploitation, sexploitation cases are happening all the time now. The risk has only gotten larger for our kids. 
Yeah, and I I see some rolling back on on some of those risks because of new laws that have been passed in the UK right, yeah. and in California. And so, and it's not just about sexploitation, although that is devastating, but there's a lot of other other issues that kids face online that they don't face on the offline world. You think about companies that can track the location of our kids that allow them to be connected with strangers. If we think about the nudges and the algorithms online that send our kids down rabbit holes with ever, ever more provocative content, these are the problems of the Internet age. And I, it's time. It's, it's beyond the time to fix them. Okay, now you mentioned the work that was done in the UK. You were involved with that. You worked with the British government on cyber safety for kids. What did you come up with? Because this can be done, right? It can be done. Now, the law called the Age Appropriate Design Code, or shorthand, the Children's Code, came into came into effect September of last year. So it's been in place about a year. And one, the 15 enforceable standards came into law in the UK, we saw massive changes in the big tech companies. So we saw, you know, Instagram banning adults from messaging children, turning off location tracking, um, introducing prompts for young people to take breaks from their scrolling. And Google made some significant changes right away. No more autoplay function on YouTube. There's a new search engine that is the default for underage users. And TikTok um, made the accounts of users under 16 private by default. Now, these were all changes that were made in response to the code in the UK, which is, it's not guidance, it's law, and it's enforceable by the UK Information Commissioner with fines up to 4% of global turnover. So this is um, this is a law with peace, and it's a law that's enforceable. That law has now been copied into California law. Okay, so we've saw we've we've seen industry jump on board and get involved and help support the line. And you're saying California has also adopted? They just directly translated to California? They did. I saw my words almost copy and pasted into California law. Now that law doesn't take effect for another year. But the point is, when you have a law that's inspiring more law reform around the world, then you could see a global standard starting to emerge. And when I came back to Canada from my role in Britain, um, I am disappointed to see that we don't have similar protections <laughs> contemplated here. Well, I, I, it is it is kind of mind-boggling because we've talked about this for so long, and I don't know where they're even at, but it's even more frustrating to find out that it exists, and other jurisdictions have said, hey, I like what you did there. We're going to steal it. I mean, why not? If it exists and it works, why not just bring that in? I mean, we need to do something. Why? Why? That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Well, we need our policy, we need our policymakers to get behind it. And there's a couple of opportunities right now in, in Canada. Um, at the federal level, there's reform of the private sector privacy law, and that is BC 27. And that draft bill does declare that children are vulnerable, but there's nothing in law that says, okay, so how are you going to protect them? So there's a big step missing there, and, and I think the code 
would fit very well into federal law. B.C. as a jurisdiction is also reforming its law. Um, Alberta's already gone through a reform exercise to modernize the law, again, without protections for children. And I think, say, you know, a generation from now, be astonished that we ever let the Internet be the Wild West for our kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that they are tracked online, that, that you know, they, they become commodities in the way that they are targeted for advertising. So sexploitation is the far, I mean, that is the worst. That's the extreme. Extreme. But there's a lot of other problems with kids, you know. They do need to have their, their default privacy settings on their profile so they can't be messaged by strangers. They do need to have behavioral targeting turned off. Algorithms should be better controlled for kids. All of these things are possible. And, and you know, when, when Britain when Britain developed its, its um, design code, tech companies said at the beginning, you're going to break the Internet. You're going to break our, our business model. But there was so much support for it, and some of the largest companies in the world got behind it that the the law works the age appropriate design code works because it's not designed to keep kids off the internet Mm -hmm. it's designed to keep them safe on the internet which i think is the we we can't keep kids off the internet they're digital natives so you need to protect them and there's accountability for the platforms and the gaming companies and the video sharing companies accountability has to be there but that doesn't leave out the family and the parental responsibilities. Of and the other thing is, time is of the essence here. I mean, it's not getting any safer on its own. You need to do this, and every day that you don't, um, kids are going to run into trouble on the Internet. I mean, that's the reality of it. That is the reality of it. And, uh, you know, our kids have... I'm I'm really pleased that my kids were... <laughs> they were grown mostly before yeah. the, the yeah. age of social media. Um, but now I have to worry about my grand, my grandchildren. But <laughs> But seriously, it is... Like we we protect kids in the analog world. There's movie ratings. They can't buy cigarettes. They, you know, they can't buy alcohol. And yeah. so why don't we have protections online? And the most innovative companies in the world, you know, the Metas and the Googles and the ByteDance and TikTok, they have they have the tools and they have the innovation to to be able to know who's online and to offer them a safer experience. Yeah, it's uh, it's it just makes so much sense. Um, Ms. Denham, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.